Well, good morning. Uh, good, it's good to be back together again. I enjoy uh, considering the Word of God uh, with you, and to be able to go back and look at Mark together again is, is certainly a privilege for us. Uh, last week when we were together, we began looking at the crucifixion of Christ. Didn't have time to finish that, and so we're going to pick up with that. So if you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15, Mark chapter 15. And the last time we were together, we worked our way down all the way to verse 24, uh, so today we're going to pick up from there, uh, but before we do so, let me just pray for our time in the Word, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll we'll see how far we get today. Father, we thank you for uh, the Word of God in and of itself. Lord, every page, every passage, every story, every word of admonition that you give to us uh, is for uh, our own edification, our growth, that we might... Uh, be conformed by it uh, to be more like your son. And so we thank you for it. And we particularly thank you for the things that we are considering these last couple weeks. Lord, the death, the sacrifice, the offering, uh, the extent of your love uh, as evidenced on the cross. So, Father, would you bless this time um, once more, even as you faithfully do each time we gather together. Minister to us, Lord, through your word we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, let me, uh, let me go back and read. I, I mentioned we left off in verse 24, but I want to go back a few verses to verse 21, uh, just to give us sort of a context. In verse 21, we read this, Mark 15, verse 21, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. He was the father of Alexander and Rufus. They compelled him to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Now, during our last study, we took notice of the fact that immediately after Jesus was scourged by the Roman soldiers, that they then forced him to carry a portion of his own cross until he was no longer able to do so, to carry that crossbar uh, to the place where he would be crucified. Here in verse 22, and we saw it last week too, but in verse 22 we see the name of that place. It's given to us in 22. It says the place was called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And again, that word Golgotha, that's an Aramaic word. That was sort of the common language uh, of the Jewish people there in Israel. Um, they, they could speak Hebrew and uh, and in some cases Greek, but the common language of the people was Aramaic. And so this place was called Golgotha. It's in Latin that we get the word Calvaria, which you can even hear and see our English word Calvary. And Mark points out that this word Golgotha, this Aramaic word that we're probably not familiar with, that it's translated the place of the skull. And it was either named the place of the skull because it kind of resembled a skull. There's actually photographs from uh, the early 1960s when that area became, was unearthed where they, they sort of look at that mount. And if you kind of look at it, you, you say, hey, that looks like two eyes and sort of the nostrils of a nose there. That looks like a skull. Um, some say it was called the place of the skull because of the way it was rounded at the top. It looked like the top of sort of a skull, a bald head. Um, so that's possibly the case. It, it may simply be called the place of the skull uh, because this is the place that the, the, the Romans crucified so many people. So many people died there. 
and thus it was called the place of the skull. One way or the other, maybe it's a combination of both of those, uh, just outside of the city of Jerusalem, no more than a mile, if that, probably uh, a, half of a mile, uh, is this little area of Golgotha, uh, the place of the skull. And it was here that Jesus was brought, because remember, he could no longer carry his own cross. Simon, uh, a visitor to the city for the Passover holiday, was compelled to carry it. Uh, They bring Jesus to this particular place, and it's here that Jesus is the cross beam that he and Simon were carrying is going to be affixed to the the beam that will go up and down uh, and be inserted into the ground, and Jesus will here be raised and crucified, as Mark 15, 24 says, and there they crucified him. And of course, we read that they divided his clothing uh, and so on amongst themselves. Now, as we move to verse 25, Mark points out to us that the time that this went down, the time that this crucifixion took place, was the third hour of the day. Now, we might think that's 3 a.m. in the morning. Their day began at 6 a.m. in the morning. So the third hour of the day would be 9 a.m. in the morning, from 6 a.m., three hours, to 9 a.m. And you recall that it was early in the morning, verse 1 tells us this, that Jesus was brought one final time before the Sanhedrin. They convicted him. Then he was delivered over to Pilate. From Pilate, he went across town to Herod. From Herod, he went back to Pilate. And it was there that Pilate finally sort of capitulated and he condemned Jesus to death, even though he didn't really think Jesus had done anything worthy of death. And so he had him scourged, and then Jesus was crucified. All that took place in the very early morning of what we call Good Friday. Uh, And then sometime during the third hour, sometime around 9 a.m., or shortly thereafter, it says that Jesus was crucified. Now skip down just for a moment with me. Look down to verse 33, because there it says, Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land, until the ninth hour. So Jesus was crucified uh, at the, as it says there, at the third hour, at the sixth hour, that's 9 a.m., at the sixth hour, uh, which would be noon, darkness covered the land. And it did so all the way until, as the verse says, the ninth hour, which would be 3 p.m. And so as we see, and as we will see, it's at that point, it's at that ninth hour that Jesus would eventually, he would cry out one final cry, he would breathe his last breath, and he would give up his spirit. And so by putting those numbers together, what we can come up with, what we can can conclude, is that the crucifixion process for Jesus lasted six total hours. It lasted from the third hour until the ninth hour, according to their reckoning, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Now, I hear that, and that sounds like a long time. But comparatively speaking, it actually wasn't a very long time. It was actually a relatively short period of time for a person that was crucified. Some crucified victims remained on the cross dying for multiple days. And here now is Jesus. He is dead after six hours. You'll notice down in verse 44. Skip down there for a moment, because verse 44 points out that when word came to Pilate that Jesus was dead, it says that Pilate was surprised to hear that. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have 
already died. So six hours sounds like a long time, but it was a relatively short period of time. And that likely speaks to uh, the fact that Jesus was already likely very physically weakened as a result of the scourgings and, and all that took place that particular evening. It, it might speak to that, that he was already in a physically weakened state and thus he died more quickly. But I think even more significantly, it verifies to us something that Jesus had said earlier in his ministry. And John chapter 10 recorded it. This is a year or more earlier than the events we've been considering. John 10 says this, For this reason the Father loves me, notice, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. He says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And so it's not as clear in Mark's account But you go back and you look at the crucifixion accounts of Matthew and of Luke and of John, they make it very, very clear that indeed no one took Jesus' life, but instead Jesus yielded up his life. And, And that is, and what I mean by that is, he determined that things were done and thus he gave up his life. John 19 verse 30, which is the crucifixion account according to John's gospel, it said, now when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Because the price had been paid, because the sinless one had become sin, paid the price, And because that is done, there was no longer any need for him to remain on the cross any longer. Because indeed, it was finished. A term which we'll look at a little further as we get further along this morning. Well, I'm I'm a little bit ahead of myself here. So why don't we go back? Why don't we pick up where we left off last week at verse 25. And so beginning in verse 26, we read, And the inscription of the charge against Jesus read, The King of the Jews... And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes, they mocked him to one another, saying, This guy, he saved others, he cannot even save himself. They said, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Now, it was customary for the Roman soldiers to attach a little board above the head of a crucified prisoner. And that little board, it's called a tatilis. It it listed the crime for which the person was being crucified. The, the purpose of this little board, it was just like the herald that would go out before the crucified victim and call out to the, to the crowd that sort of lined the streets that the victim walked on. Uh, it, its whole purpose was designed to send this message, don't commit the crime that this guy committed or this will be your fate as well. And so here's the crucified victim and nailed above their head is a little board that would explain what this person's crime was. If you come from a Catholic background, Catholics, they, they tend to have at the front of the church is a crucifix and where Jesus is still affixed to the cross. And above Jesus' head uh, will be the, that little white board there. And you'll see the letters I-N-R-I. Uh, those letters 
stand for the Latin words, Iasis Nazarenus Rex Iadorum, which means Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. I-N-R-I. John's Gospel tells us that the words that were listed there actually weren't abbreviated. They were written out. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He also tells us that they were written out in at least three languages, maybe four. And so they were written out in Aramaic, they were written out in Latin, they were written out in Greek, and quite possibly even in the Hebrew language as well. And so big sign, I have to imagine, is put up there so that everyone that passed by would be able to read the crime that this person had committed, that they would be warned, don't do what this guy had done. And of course, we know that the official charge that was brought against Jesus that would satisfy the Romans was the charge of insurrection, that Jesus had made himself to be a king of the Jews. And even though Pilate knew what Jesus meant by that was not that he was going to overthrow the Caesar or something like that, because Pilate was compelled to satisfy the Jewish leaders, compelled to satisfy that crowd that was in front of him, threatening, it seems, to riot, that's the charge that uh, Pilate condemned Jesus for, and that's the reason why Jesus was crucified. Now, in addition to Jesus... There were two others that were crucified uh, that Friday morning there at Golgotha. Uh, We read that in verse 27, two other robbers that were crucified there, one on Jesus' right side, one on Jesus' left, probably, possibly um, friends with, partners with Barabbas. Uh, The three of them got caught doing something together, um, quite possibly. Of course, Jesus took the place of Barabbas, even as he took the place of you and I, And as Mark says in verse 27, he says, And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left, so that the scripture was fulfilled that says he was numbered with the transgressors. Once more, the prophet of old's words come true. This time we have the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah, you remember, wrote 700 years before these things took place. But Isaiah would say this. This is chapter 53, verse 12 of his book. He says, Therefore I'll divide his portion with the many, I'll divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and then notice, and was numbered with the transgressors. And yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. And so once more, we have hundreds of years after the fact, words that Christ had no ability to control, or his disciples had any ability to control, we see those words literally fulfilled. Again, that shows us that the events of Good Friday were not an accident, that this was the plan of God foreordained at the very least a thousand years earlier, and as the scripture says in other places, even before the foundation of the earth. This was the means by which God would save his people. Jesus would be crucified amongst two transgressors, two thieves. Now, adding insult to injury, we see in verse 29 that those that pass by, uh, they deride Jesus as they do so. Uh, One thing you should know about Golgotha, Golgotha is not in some field far away. Um, Golgotha is just simply a high hill right off of a main thoroughfare going in and out of Jerusalem, likely leading out to places like Um, Bethany and some of those other towns that we've considered before. 
And so lots of people would have been going on this particular road uh, the morning, the, the Friday morning there. And so just to the side, you, you would see the cross. And that was also done by design by the Romans. They didn't want to be, this to be in some secret place that nobody would know of. They wanted to be out there so everyone would see it and everyone would take heed not to do what this guy would have done. But here it says that those who passed by, they derided Jesus, even as he hung on a cross. That word derided, not a word I commonly use. It means they mocked him. They blasphemed him. They spoke evil of him. They said all manner of things against him as he hung on a cross and, you know, in a sense, couldn't do anything to them. They felt compelled uh, to, to say the things they were saying about him. They perceived, here's this guy, he's weak, here's this guy, he is defeated, and they began to challenge him uh, in that defeat. They began to challenge him regarding some of his past claims. You remember they thought, and, and they claimed this, it wasn't true, it's not what Jesus said, and certainly not what he meant, but they claimed that he said he would tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days here. And you can see that in verse 29, part of their uh, deriding of him or derision of him, they say, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. He says, save yourself. They say, you're going to tear down the temple and rebuild it. You can't even save yourself. They mock him as he hangs there on the cross. Mark goes on to point out in verse 31 that the priest, the chief priest and the scribes, those religious leaders, that they join in with the passers-by and they begin to mock the Lord. You'll notice in verse 31, Mark says, he saved others and he cannot save himself. And I'm sure they all laughed and giggled, you know, at the funny joke that the chief priest and the others have said. They notice they say in verse 32, they even challenge him, come down off the cross. And if you do, then we'll believe you are who you say you are. Prove to us that you are who you say you are and we'll believe. And sometimes when I'm in sort of the flesh, I... I, sometimes I wish Jesus did come down, that he would come down, show them who he really was, and then go back up on the cross just to sort of prove his point. But that's just because I have a bad attitude uh, when I think that. Jesus doesn't come down from the cross. And he doesn't come down from the cross to save himself because Jesus could either save himself or he could save humanity. But he could not do both. And so Jesus doesn't come down from the cross because if he did come down from the cross, that would mean humanity's eternal destruction. And so they mock him, they jeer him, they taunt him, but Jesus doesn't respond. Instead, it's in Luke's gospel that we discover that what he does instead is he prays. Luke chapter 23, 34, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And for three hours, Jesus endures their mockery and their insult. And I don't say this lightly, but I think there's a satanic origin to their mockery and their jokes that are here, stirred up by Satan himself to mock uh, the Son of God. Because if you think about it, common decency would be to let the man die in peace. The reality is he hadn't done anything to any of them necessarily. It's not like he did this horrible thing and, and they were mad at him. He hadn't done anything um, in particular to them. The, the vast majority of the time he helped them. And yet for whatever reason, even passers-by who seemingly have nothing to do with this, they even just in common decency, they can't leave the man alone. The man's been defeated. Why pile on now? And yet they do. 
And even these highly educated and refined religious leaders, even they, they have so much hate for Jesus that they just can't help themselves. And so for three hours, they jeer him, they mock him, they seek to further humiliate him. But again, look at those words once more in verse 31. He saved others, he cannot save himself. And little did those religious leaders know just how true those words actually were and are. Because that's the gospel message. And that's the supreme and central truth about the incarnation of Christ, the coming of Christ. He would save others, but he could not save himself. Of course, Jesus had the power to come down from the cross and save himself. Surely the one that could heal the sick with a touch, and in some cases, long distances with just a word, surely the one that could feed the multitude with only a few fish and a few loaves of bread, surely the one that could raise the dead back to life, surely he could deliver himself from the cross and save himself. If, however, Jesus desired to save others, then he could not come down from the cross. Because again, as I said a moment ago, Jesus could either save himself or he could save others, but he could not do both. And so it's not that it's a physical impossibility for Jesus to come down from the cross. It was a spiritual impossibility for Jesus to come down from the cross. And that is, if he was still determined to save people from their sins, then, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. If there was any other way, he could come down, but there was no other way. You think back to the, the events that transpired this last few hours, and all along the way, Jesus could have saved himself. Pilate, you recall, had given him plenty of openings to defend himself. It, it seems Pilate was just looking for a reason to let Jesus go. And if Jesus wanted to save himself, he could have employed one of those opportunities. Jesus could have appealed to the greater crowd of Jerusalem, the people that had welcomed him in even from before he entered into Jerusalem by laying out the red carpet, so to speak, for him. He could have appealed to them, and surely those followers could have rose up and, and overpowered the crowd that was calling for his crucifixion. Or even just the evening before as Jesus was in the garden, and Peter, you recall, the guards came. Peter drew his sword, and he, he began to fight to free Jesus. And, and Jesus told him to stop. And then he said, do you not think that I can't appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. A Roman legion uh, was 6,000 men. And so if Jesus is using that term in that context, Jesus is talking about 72,000 angels. He said, don't you think my father could send me 72,000 angels that could come and deliver me in this particular instance? So if Jesus wanted to save himself, he could have saved himself. But Jesus was strong enough not to save himself. Jesus was strong enough not to allow people to push his buttons and respond in a way that was outside of God's will and detrimental to God's plan. Rather, despite the opposition, we see Jesus cooperating with God. Because the only way that he could defeat death, and you recall the scripture says that the wages of sin is death, the only way that he could defeat death was through his own death. 
as G. Campbell Morgan has written, he said, in the divine economy, and what that means is in the way in which God works, in the divine economy, Jesus could only slay death by dying and only end sin by being made sin. Jesus was strong enough to be weak enough to die. And little did these hecklers realize just how true their words actually were. Jesus could either save himself or save others, but he could not accomplish both. And of course, we see he chose to save others. What's remarkable in doing so is that some of those very priests themselves, there at the foot of the cross mocking the Lord, reap the benefits of that salvation. We read a few uh, chapters later, or maybe within a few years of this time, we read this in the book of Acts, chapter 6. It says, now when the word of God, it says, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Isn't that something? A great many of the priests, the very ones that voted for him to die, the very ones that brought lies and accusations against him, the very ones that, uh, many of which were at the foot of the cross mocking him, those very ones, many of those very men were saved as a result of his death. And I think that speaks to the greatness of his victory on the cross. I'll modify the Apostle Paul's words a little bit. The Apostle Paul, uh, to some degree, he said this, Though they were yet sinners, Christ died for them, referring to those chief priests and those priests that were gathered there. Isaiah would say, by his stripes we would be healed. I think we can change that a little bit to say, by his stripes, even some of the very ones actually responsible for his death were healed. How remarkable. Now they say, come down that we may see and believe. But in saying that, they forget that according to the, the idea of scripture, seeing is not believing. We may say that, seeing is believing. We may say that, but the scripture doesn't teach that. Seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing, according to God's word. And so, would they really believe if Jesus came down from the cross? Would they really believe if presented with enough evidence? The reality is we know they wouldn't. Because just a few days later, when they were presented with the testimony of those guards that were placed to stand guard at the tomb of Jesus, lest some of his followers steal the body, we read the story, we'll look at it a little bit later, one of our future studies here. But those guards, when, when the stone was rolled away and the body was gone, those guards would go to the religious leaders, they would explain the circumstance. The immediate response of the religious leaders is not to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but rather to come up with a plan to explain away the resurrection and to come up with a plan to bribe those guards so that they wouldn't tell anyone else about the resurrection. We read about it in Matthew 28. It says, Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city, told the chief priest all that had taken place, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a, a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers, and they said, Tell the people his disciples stole the body away while you were asleep. And so it's clear the problem is not, and it will not be, a lack of evidence. The problem with these religious leaders was a stubborn and hard heart 
that refused to submit itself to God and to his plan. And so even if Jesus did come down from the cross, they wouldn't believe. Now we return. Let's go back to verse 33 of our text. Take a quick sip of water. Verse 33 says, Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and they filled a sponge with sour wine and they, they put it on a reed and they gave it to him to drink saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. And so from 9 a.m. until noon... The passers-by, the religious leaders, if you look at verse 32, even the other criminals that were crucified alongside of him reviled him. Then Mark points out at noon, darkness comes over the whole land. We see that in verse 33, and that it remains that way until the ninth hour, which again is 3 p.m. Now many hear that, they see that, oh, darkness came over the land, and they quickly assume that a solar eclipse just so happened to coincide with the crucifixion of Christ. But there's two reasons why this cannot be a solar eclipse. Number one is we know that Jesus was crucified during the Passover and that the Passover always coincided, it was always celebrated during a full moon during the springtime. Eclipses occur during the new moon phase of the moon cycle, a very different phase. And so it can't be an eclipse for that reason. Additionally, solar eclipses typically last a few minutes at best. Here you have the darkening of the earth, the darkening of the sun, and it lasts for three full hours here. So something different is going on than just sort of the natural phenomena that we see every now and again on the earth. What is happening here is that, uh, again, as I said, something more than the natural occurrence, what is happening in these three hours of darkness is that the judgment of God's wrath is being poured out upon the atoning sacrifice, his son, Jesus Christ. And you can divide the six hours of the cross into two parts. Part one, with the sun fully shining for all to see what's going on, Jesus is suffering at the hands of men. Part two in the darkness of God's judgment, where, if you will, it's pitch black and it's just between God and Jesus, Jesus is submitting himself to the wrath of his Father. Again, not for his own sin, but for the sin of those that put him up there on the cross. And for three hours in the darkness, Jesus is undergoing the winepress of God's judgment, and he's doing so alone. He was, as one commentator wrote, separate from humanity for the sake of humanity. And then at the ninth hour at 3 p.m., Jesus quotes Psalm 22. He cries it out in Aramaic. It's written for us here in Mark's gospel. He cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And I don't know Aramaic. I suspect you don't either. Mark is gracious to translate that for us. That means he cried out, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Those are the opening words to Psalm 22. There's Psalm 22, verse 1. 
Psalm 22, verse the whole chapter, was written by David. They were written about a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth. And that particular psalm is a messianic psalm. Go back and read it. I encourage you to do so either later today or maybe during uh, the week. Go back and read and think about Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is is referenced multiple times uh, during this time on the cross. And so whether it's Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, Luke's or John's gospel, multiple times they refer back to and they allude to different things that are recorded for us in Psalm 22. Here, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani, that's Psalm 1, or uh, excuse me, verse 1. But verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 22 are addressed, verses 12 and 13, verses 14 and 15, verses 16 through 18. All of those verses are pointed out at some point in time or another by any of those four gospel writers. And by quoting Psalm 22, what Jesus is doing, Jesus is declaring that he is fulfilling Psalm 22. And again, it's a, it's a somewhat long psalm that I would encourage you to look at. We're not going to look at it here this morning, but I'll, I'll tell you just the basic setting of the, of the chapter. The beginning of the chapter is of an individual that has been, to use the word, forsaken and is in the process of being defeated. That psalm ends with a victorious cry. And Jesus, by referencing Psalm 22, is pointing our attention to Psalm 22. He's telling us he is fulfilling Psalm 22. Last week, we looked at Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, who again wrote 700 years before Christ, where God revealed, he showed Isaiah those events which would take place 700 years later. Here, we see God did the same thing with David a thousand years earlier. He showed David these things. David was there, if you will, and wrote about these things. And in light of what we're considering this morning, to consider that these things were written a thousand years earlier, it's truly remarkable. Again, take some time this week and look at it. But Psalm 22, 1, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And for the first time in all of eternity, Jesus is experiencing the separation that sin brings. As the sinless one, he never before experienced that separation for any reason. Never said a bad word, never did a bad thing, never did anything that would separate him from God, that would require that he find a way uh, to be atoned for that sin. And so for the first time in all of eternity, Jesus is now taking upon himself sin, and he is now experiencing for the first time in all of eternity the separation that that sin brings. And on top of that, he's being judged for the sin of all humanity that he has taken upon himself. No wonder he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why are you so far from me? Psalm 22, 1 Mark 15, 34, those words, they indicate the awful rejection that Jesus underwent as he became the one who bore our sin. Because again, I'll remind you, the cross was both the display of God's hatred for sin, while at the same time it was the display of the infinite love that he had for lost humanity. And it was Jesus who was taking upon himself the display of God's hatred for sin. He cries, my God, my God, 
why have you forsaken me? Or Eli, Eli, why have you forsaken me? And as we see, some of those heard that word, Eli, Eli, they, they began to think, hey, he's calling for Elijah. Mark points that out in verse 35. He's calling for Elijah. Let's wait and see if Elijah will come. Now, Mark, I told you, was a little bit brief uh, in his uh, recounting of these events. And it's helpful for us to look at the other Gospels. And so if we look at Matthew's Gospel and John's Gospel, we can, uh, we can piece together some other things that went on surrounded around the, these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so piecing together Matthew's Gospel and John's account of this moment, what we learn is that immediately following this cry about the Father forsaking him, that Jesus then declared, I thirst. We see that in John 19, 28. He says, Jesus, knowing that, that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And that that, John also goes on to point out, that prompted some that were nearby to grab a jar that was nearby, that was filled with sour wine, put a little sponge in that, put that on a stick or something to get it high enough up that they could moisten the lips of the Lord. They could, we might say, wet his whistle so that he would be able to sort of formulate the words, his tongue, which was dry and sticking uh, to the, the roof of his mouth. It would be able to formulate the words that he would need to, that Jesus wanted to say something. He said, I thirst because he wanted to say something to the people. He wanted to give one final cry. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what that final cry was. You can see in verse 37, Mark just simply says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. But Luke's gospel and John's gospel actually tells us what those final words were. Luke says this. It says that, and this is chapter 23, verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. Now, John says, when Jesus received that sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And so you piece all of those pieces together. Jesus said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. He said, then he said, I thirst. Uh, they would raise this sponge with the sour wine to Jesus' mouth so that he could wet his mouth and be able to speak. And he said, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. That's one word in the original Greek language. Obviously, it's three uh, here in the English language. It's the Greek word to telestai. Uh, perhaps you've heard of it. It's an interesting word for Mark uh, to choose as he writes this. I, I suspect Jesus probably called it out in Aramaic. Uh, and yet it's an interesting Greek word that Mark has chosen to write uh, because it's an accounting term that uh, Mark uses here. It's an accounting term which means paid in full. It's a word in our day that if you had sort of this bill that you were making payments on over a period of time, eventually when you made the final payment, the, the red stamp would come down across the bill that said paid in full. And you would hold on to that receipt. And if anybody ever came back and said you owed them more money, you would show them that red stamp that said paid in full. That's the Greek word to telestai. That's what Jesus said. That's what he called out when he said that it is finished. Jesus didn't die from exhaustion on the cross. He didn't die from suffocation, 
as the typical crucifixion victim would. He didn't die from a loss of blood, and he didn't die from some sort of injury to an internal organ, which ultimately ended up ending his life. Jesus declares here, he accomplished that which he had come to accomplish, accomplish, and he yielded up his spirit. He said, it is finished. And because it was finished, there was no longer any reason for Jesus to hang on that cross. Matthew chapter 27 says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. And Mark will go on to say that coinciding with the yielding up of his spirit, Mark will go on to tell us in 38 that the temple veil, that veil which separated the, the holy place, the front, or po front portion of the temple, and the most holy place, the smaller back portion of the temple, Mark will tell us that coinciding with Jesus' death, that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Matthew's gospel will go on to add some interesting things. Matthew says that in addition to the veil being torn, that the earth shook, there was an earthquake, that the rocks were split, and then catch this one, and that the tombs were opened, and that many were raised from the dead and went into the city and appeared to many in the city. That's something to read, isn't it? Well, I'm not going to get into that right now, um, but boy, look at that. All of these things going uh, as Jesus said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. Mark points out that the veil was torn. We know the veil was anywhere from 60 to 100 feet high, and that it was anywhere from 6 to 12 inches thick. So we're not talking about a, a little bed sheet or something here that separated those two rooms. We're talking about a thick veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place or what is sometimes called the holy of holies and you recall the holy of holies was the place where the presence of god was pleased to dwell this special unique place there with the ark of the covenant where god chose to allow his presence to dwell and fill that temple that veil separating those two rooms was torn in two very significant for us. The writer of Hebrews will tell us that because it represents that access has now been granted to all, that they might come directly into the presence of God through the work of Christ, the one who tore the veil or whose work tore the veil. Prior to that, the only person that could go into that most holy place was the high priest, and he could only go in there one day of the year, the day of atonement. Now, the veil has been torn, and access has been granted. God's wrath has been satisfied, and once and for all time, the price for sin had been paid. So significant. Also, notice how significant it is, and we might read by it very quickly and not pay much attention to it, but notice it says the veil was torn from top to bottom. It's as if God himself from heaven is tearing the veil, so that man may enter in. I think it would be very, very different if it was torn from the bottom to the top. But that would seem to indicate man had something to do with it. But this veil was torn from top to bottom. Mark picks up in verse 39. He says, Now when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, as I pointed out last week, a centurion was a ruler over a hundred Roman soldiers. You can see that almost the word century there. 
And so by rising to the position of a centurion, it's pretty obvious that this man had participated in many other crucifixions before this particular crucifixion. <clears throat> Just by uh, the nature of the position that he held. And this centurion had no doubt he had seen many people crucified before, and yet there was something so remarkable about Jesus's crucifixion, something so different about this that would cause this centurion to conclude, as you see in the words there, truly this man was the Son of God. Earlier on in Jesus's ministry, John chapter 12 tells us, Jesus said to his disciples, when I am lifted up from the earth, he said, I will draw all people to myself. And here we are, which is moments following Jesus's death, and he is already accomplishing that which he predicted. And so because Jesus was lifted up on a cross, Jews would be drawn to him. Because Jesus was lifted up on a cross, condemned criminals alongside of him would be drawn to him. Because he was lifted up on a cross, religious officials that previously condemned him would be drawn to him. And as we see with this gentleman, even hardened Roman officials would be drawn unto Jesus because of his death on a cross. And this is why we preach Christ. This is why we preach him crucified. Because as Paul the Apostle said in another place, for unto us that believe, the message of the cross is the power of God unto salvation for all that believe. And so with that, we're going to bring our time together to a close. But I just want to point this out to you just one more time as I did even last week. The cross is the foundation of our faith. And yes, the scripture speaks a lot about the lives that we're supposed to live and the type of people that we become as Christians and sort of a morality that, that enters into our lives. But it's a mistake for us to think that we can have the Christian faith and not have the cross of Jesus Christ. It's because of the cross of Jesus Christ that our sin is dealt with. And it's because of the cross of Jesus Christ that any righteousness that our lives may demonstrate can be ours because God made him who had no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Amen? The cross of Christ. Let's pray. And so, Father, we rejoice in that just one more time afresh. Lord, particularly those of us that are familiar with the cross, we've considered the cross for, for many, many years, we've become a Christian, we remind ourselves in a fresh way once more this morning of the importance of the place of the cross, not just in the start of our faith, but in each day of our walk with you. Father, we, uh, we preach that message because we know that as the Son of Man is lifted up, all will be drawn unto him. And we pray for any that might be watching this morning that wonder if they could be saved. You think of a, a priest that condemned Jesus to death. He would wonder if Jesus would forgive him. You think of a Roman soldier that actually put Jesus to death. He might wonder if Jesus could forgive him. And so, Father, I pray that any that might be uh, tuning in to hear these words that are wondering if God would receive them, that you would make it abundantly clear to their heart to look to you in faith that their sins might be covered and they could be brought into right relationship with you. 
And we pray that prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.